and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie in today's episode is uh, one that most definitely needs more love because it is a movie that, uh, first off, it's a movie that you I, you would not expect to hear from me on a show like this. But once I get into my rationale, you'll understand. And the movie I am talking about is the 1999 Best Picture winner, Shakespeare in Love, which right off the top of your head, I know people are going to be saying, oh my God, you're going to sit there and say a Best Picture winner needs more love? And my argument is yes, because this one gets shit on constantly. Ever since the day it won Best Picture in 99, it has routinely been called the worst Best Picture winner ever, and everyone craps on it. And I hate that they do because I love this movie. I'm an unabashed Shakespeare and Love fan, which I know will surprise a lot of people. But as, again, as we get going, I think you will understand more where I'm coming from and why I wanted to pick this movie. And my guest today, uh, I've had him on the show before. He did my little big league episode a couple years ago. And uh, he is let's see, an actor, a writer, a former theater kid. And I know he's a big fan of this movie as well. And so he, I think he's the one who suggested this to me a while back. Said, hey, we should do Shakespeare in Love. Nobody ever talks about that movie and says anything nice. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I do on Staff Picks. Let's defend a movie that nobody ever says anything nice about. So welcome back to the show to defend Shakespeare in Love, Will Olson. Glad to be here, Mario. <laughs> so was I correct in my memory? Or are you the one who suggested this movie? I forget. I think it was one of those that was on kind of your pitch for Staff Picks in general. Like you just had a big list of movies you'd want to do and i think i saw it on there i'm like finally somebody else loves this movie too excellent now have you found that has made your life difficult is one of the rare people who admit that you like shakespeare in love um i'd say so um <laughs> i had a buddy at work um i used to work with a couple years ago and we used to debate movies all the time when we were in working in the back and he got so mad. Every time I'd bring up Shakespeare in Love, he'd be like, oh, my God, I can't believe that movie, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, it's a good movie, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to fill um, people in a little bit on my history. Before I did this podcast, I had a website called, I think it was called 365 Movies That Deserve More Love. And it was meant to be one movie a day that I wanted to defend that nobody ever talked about. It eventually became 200 Movies That Deserve More Love Because I'm Lazy. And then I got even lazier, and I never finished the list, so I apologize. But Shakespeare in Love was one of the first ones I wrote about. And, uh, yeah, so that's always been my thing. Like, when these, picture, when these movies win Best Picture and they get crapped on for the entire rest of eternity, I always love to defend them because, again, somebody has to. Like, there was a reason this movie won Best Picture, which, Will, I hope we can get into here. Yeah, definitely. And you said in the intro that it's one of the most – hated uh best picture winners and i have a few um other options a few more contenders and i think even shakespeare in love beats that i'd say i'd go to say it is the most hated 100 percent number one everyone hates this movie so <laughs> although let's fill people in now there are a lot of people maybe younger listeners they might not realize why a movie would be hated so badly Will, I know you did some research on this. Explain the 1999 Best Picture race and what movie lost and why it was such a big deal. All right, so here we go. Uh, this is going to be fun for a number of reasons because 
there's one guy I'm going to try to talk around. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess you can't really. So Harvey Weinstein, that old guy, um, he was kind of the rough and tumble New Yorker um, media company owner who was trying to really break into Hollywood and reach prominence and get Oscar fame. Um, he had a couple years before he did, he was behind Pulp Fiction and The Crying Game in the early 90s. And then The English Patient, which actually won um, in 96, um, he was behind that as well. But for Shakespeare in Love, he was going up against pretty much the, you know, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady of Hollywood at the time, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. <laughs> so, now, what, what movie would that be? Um, that would be Saving Private Ryan. Have you heard of that one? <laughs> <laughs> yes. For people who have not seen Saving Private Ryan, imagine if they took a movie, if they genetically in a laboratory designed the perfect movie to win Best Picture. It's a World War II epic starring Steven, or directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Tom Hanks with the most gripping reenactment of the storming of uh, the beach at Normandy in movie history. And also Tom Hanks dies in it. So this movie was genetically engineered to win Best Picture, and to this day, like 99.99% of the world think it should have won, but Shakespeare in Love somehow snuck in there and stole its Oscar, and you will not hear, I mean, you will still still hear people bitching about that to this day. Yeah, and not only did it beat Saving Private Ryan, Weinstein cocked it up this whole press blitz kind of slander the competition strategy and I think it was one of the first Best Picture nominees to take advantage of screeners, mm -hmm. which is when they would send copies of the movie directly to the Oscar voters. So they can be like, oh, I'm a lazy old man. I can watch this at home. Um, so back in the day, those would have been those things called VHSs. <laughs> <laughs> so um, and everyone, even at the time, people were like, hey, you're kind of being an asshole about this whole Oscar campaign. And he's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and so even like at the time people were angry before the results even came in and i think people were like oh there's no way he's gonna it's it's spielberg it's world war ii it's tom hanks and then they opened the envelope that january and everyone just oh shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh of, of all the best picture upsets I have ever seen in my lifetime, Saving Private Ryan not winning has got to be the number one on my list. And again, when Shakespeare in Love came out, I have to reiterate to people, the reviews of this movie were amazing. If you go back and read all the reviews, they're just glowing with how charming it is and how fun and just how clever it is and how the dialogue is amazing. It's really well crafted, but they're like a movie this slight should not beat Saving Private Ryan. So it's like, that's the one thing that I think has been lost to history. Most critics love this movie when it first came out. Yeah, I think that's really important to emphasize. So, because I got curious, I thought it was, you know, something like, you know, The Artist, which all the Hollywood critics were like, oh, I love this. And everyone, like the audience scores were really low. I looked it up and it was, you know, high 90s for both for Shakespeare and Love. So, you know, it's... It's kind of it's the movie that kind of set the precedent for all these more smaller artsy kind of independent movies to come up and win, you know, like Hurt Locker and Moonlight and movies like that beating kind of bigger, more um, heavy competition. Um, so we can blame Weinstein for that, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. OK, we'll talk about Weinstein in a minute. I don't want to dwell too much on him because. 
in my opinion, he doesn't have that much to do with this movie. He's just the producer. But like all the people that worked really hard to make it is a whole different argument. <laughs> but I, I was going to say what I love about Shakespeare in Love. Well, two things about it. First, I'm in English. I was an English major in uh, when I was in college and stuff. So like this movie is like crack for anybody who grew up with like Shakespeare and English major stuff because it's just all Shakespeare in jokes woven in and out of the movie. Is that, I'm, I'm assuming you were going to talk about that. You have that in your notes as well. Oh, for sure. I actually tried. I was watching it earlier and I was like, okay, I'm going to write down all the little Shakespeare nods and throwaway lines and all that. There were so many, like every 30 seconds. I'm like, if I try to write all of these down, I'm going to miss plot points. Yeah. So it's, it's insane. It's a movie that rewards the smarter viewer. That's one thing I've noticed that it's like, I know a lot about Shakespeare and I think I missed probably 50% of the references in this movie. Yeah, there were a few that even I was like, I think that might be something. <laughs> like, is that is that Shakespeare? Is that a different play? Like, I don't know which sonnet that's supposed to be, but you know, because I have, you know, I was a theater major in college and actually took a class on Shakespeare, like how to act Shakespeare, and that was really the first time Shakespeare made sense to me that mm -hmm. I really kind of figured out how to read it and actually you know be a Shakespeare actor because you know in like we read Romeo and Juliet in ninth grade and everyone like all the cool kids were just sitting at their desk like oh but okay uh buh, buh. but you know all the kids that really kind of gave a shit they're like oh let's make this fun and actually act but it's we didn't know what these words meant so we're like oh let's just be all you know loud and British and you know kind of acting like that more of a caricature of British people, I guess, than actually being able to analyze the text. But, <laughs> but yeah, this this movie has a very specific audience. That's the one thing I think Will and I want to get across to people, that not everyone will love this movie, as admittedly most of the world will tell you, but people that do love this movie really love this movie. I have... I just the other day I was talking to a couple uh, people that work in theater and live theater and stage that do stage work now, and they're like, "That is one of the greatest movies ever made because it's just like a love letter to the act of performing on stage." Yeah, and I think to kind of in a weird way compare it back to Little Big League, which you know was the last time I was on, we talked about how the people that wrote that movie really knew their shit about baseball, mm -hmm. and for this one. The people who, you know, worked on and wrote this movie really know their shit about theater because the Tom Stoppard is, you know, the one of the screenwriters of this uh, movie. And he's like a mega famous British playwright. Um, technically, he's Czech, but he lived in Britain. Um, and he's written like a number of really famous plays like Roland Krantz and Guildenstern are dead, mm -hmm. which is like a really famous kind of Shakespeare parody kind of show. And then he had Travesties in Arcadia. And then his one play, The Coast of Utopia, got 10 Tony nominations and seven wins, which is the most for a play at the Tonys. So he's he's kind of a big deal. Yeah, that's that, I'm glad I didn't know that I didn't know the history behind who wrote this. But, yeah, that's my takeaway from this movie is that when I watch Shakespeare in Love, even to this day, when I still watch it, I'm like, that movie was written by somebody who's way smarter than me. And I really appreciate movies like that because it really aims for a different crowd. And again, uh, like, <laughs> I don't want to bash Saving Private Ryan too much, but I've never liked that movie that much. Like, I love the opening, but after that, I find it very tedious. 
Like, it's like, all right, I've seen war movies before. Like, I, admittedly, some people love war movies, some don't. And, uh, but it's not really my thing. But this movie, there's so many different layers going in. There's so many different layers in it and the different levels of the comedy and the humor and the references. And it's very clever. And again, I just sit there and admire it. Cause this is one of those movies I sit there and think I could not have written that. It's not even close. Yeah. I mean, I had a great, like Shakespeare, um, Save the Private Ryan is a good half hour, you know, Normandy scene mm-hmm. <laughs> followed by, you know, two and a half hours of hide and seek with maybe a few more action scenes sparsed very far between. So, and I mean, I'd honestly, I wrote down the best picture nominees that year. I'd argue to say that saving private Ryan isn't even the best war movie that got nominated that year. (laughs) Oh, what else got nominated? I forget. Uh, It was Shakespeare in love, saving private Ryan, um, Elizabeth, which Mm -hmm. apparently is a movie. Um, Life is Beautiful, um, which in my estimation is probably the best World War II movie ever. I mean, probably second to Shouldn't List, of course. But and then uh, The Thin Red Line by Terrence Malick, which is, you know, I know I just called Saving Private Ryan boring, but The Thin Red Line is kind of boring in a smart way, you know, in a more kind of philosophical sense where there's more to appreciate than just like, okay, we get it. You can't find private Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. So are we just trolling save it, saving private Ryan fans that what we're doing on this episode? I mean, they're not going to listen anyway, so why not? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But okay. I want to, I want to give my history because as I said earlier, a lot of people would not expect this movie to be on staff picks because a lot of people say, oh, you just do guy movies, you do stupid comedies, you do horror movies. But like, if you look through that and look at what I try to do on staff picks, is that what I like to do is I like to highlight movies that people feel passionate about, that I feel passionate about, or my co-host really feels passionate about. And I, I like introducing things that people really love into the world. And that's why I'm always sticking up for underdogs, underrated movies, stuff like that. That's just what I do. And this whole movie, the whole point of Shakespeare Love is it's about people that want to share their passion with the world and want to find passion in art. And like, it's like, it's perfect for staff picks. So if you know anything about me, you can see this is exactly the type of movie that I like to do because that's the whole premise of the movie is can you find truth in art and can you make art make you feel things? It's it's like very poignant to me that I, I feel so strongly about this movie. Yeah, I think for me, it's, it's just one of those movies where if I'm in a really bad mood and I just, I need something to cheer me up, I just put it on mm-hmm. and... Because it's, it's like you said, it's about can art make you feel something? You know, there's, you know, a big sec- plot point in the second half of the movie is all about that. So, you know, it's it really kind of lifts your spirits and makes you believe in art if, you know, as if it's like the tooth fairy. It's like, oh, it's not real. But, you know, really make it you believe that it has value. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, well said. That's exactly what I was trying to get across. This movie makes you believe in the power of art, that art, that movies can make you feel things, plays can make you feel things. And admittedly, I am not a theater kid. I was not a, a stage performer. I know you are, and I'll probably tease you about it because I tend to take digs at theater kids all the time. But there's something to be said for people who dedicate their life to this and really believe in this message. You go out and act out a play for somebody. You make the audience feel things. You move them to silence or applause. Like, I'm sure you could speak to that better than I could. 
Oh, a hundred percent. And even like, you know, when I was in school studying theater, you know, one of the big questions I got was like, Oh, what are you going to do with that theater degree? You know, blah, blah, is it really worth it? And like, I just want to like tie people down and show them this movie. It's like, yes, this is why, you know, people should study theater, should do theater, should go watch theater. Like, and just, and like you said, movies too, like just art in general is a you know, really important part of society and, you know, humanity. Yeah. And, and following up on that, that is why I am able to talk about this movie and not really talk about the Harvey Weinstein stuff. Because I, I, I don't know if you know this, but I mentioned on Facebook that I was doing Shakespeare in Love and I had at least five people said, oh, a Harvey Weinstein movie, you got balls. And I'm like, to me, that has nothing to do with it. Like it's to me, I just look at the art of the movie, where the movie starts, where the movie ends. And I really couldn't give a rat's ass about anything outside the movie. To me, it's just a self-contained two hours piece of art. So that's why I didn't want to really get into the Harvey Weinstein stuff. Just because, you know, admittedly, people have strong opinions on that, and I do too, but that's not this podcast. This podcast, we're just discussing the art that people made out of this movie. Oh, 100%. And, you know, you talking about the Oscars, you know, you kind of have to a little bit, but, you know, now that we're all past that, you know, you know, screw Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. A couple things about Shakespeare in Love. Uh, you probably know this. I was looking at this up, and I found this in the trivia section. This movie won Best Picture in 1999. It was the first comedy to win Best Picture since 1977. So it was kind of a big deal, 22 years until a comedy won. Did you know that? Yeah, that was Annie Hall, right? Correct, Annie Hall. Yeah. Woody Allen to Harvey Weinstein, great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Change the subject. We're not going to talk about Sorry. either of these people. Right. Last joke. Sorry. <laughs> and then uh, the other thing, as I want to say, is my like again, my background. Even though I'm kind of a you know, <laughs> I watch these jackass guy movies and horror movies. Like that's my thing. But like, I was an English major. I'm pretty well versed in Shakespeare and English literature and stuff. And I I was an English major all the way through college until my junior year when. I decided I don't like hanging around English majors. Sorry, Will. Are you an English major? Uh, I was actually a theater major, okay. so worse. <laughs> worse. Yeah, so I decided I cannot be handle being around English majors. And for anybody who's listening who's an English major, I mean everybody but you. You're the exception. So anyway, I switched to psychology. But yeah, this is totally my background. I love this movie. It's so clever. If people have not seen it before, it's an alternative history or an alternative telling of how Romeo and Juliet, the most famous play, stage play in history, came about. It's kind of a very clever uh, uh, tweak of history. Is that the best way to describe it, you'd say? Yeah, I mean, the only other way I could think to describe it would be like a you know a fan fiction of Shakespeare you know but because mm -hmm. there are a couple of you know like the Curtain Theater the Rose Theater those really existed you know the Admiral's Men Chamberlain's Men they actually existed like it's not like you know they said it's like oh you know Shakespeare and his Wookiee friend Chewbacca I'm like no these are you know it's real places real people real groups real you know real history um, but it was tweaked a little bit I have a you know, a couple of fact checks that we can that I can bring up throughout the uh, pod, but um, but yeah, it just kind of tells the story of how Shakespeare got his inspiration for Romeo and Juliet, um, but of course, very fictionalized because you know Romeo and Juliet was pretty much just a remake. <laughs> so, <laughs> wait, what do you mean by that? You know more about this than I do. 
Yeah, um, like Romeo and Juliet, there was an Italian play. Um, I think it was called, you know, Romulus and Juliet, like something like a different kind of name, but, you know, more Italian sounding. And I got translated into English um, and it stayed the same, the same play. And then Shakespeare read that and was like, hey, I can, you know, tweak this a little bit and kind of make it my own. Um, So that's really how Romeo and Juliet came to be. It really was kind of like, oh, I'll just, you know, take this Italian play and crib a little bit of it and then make it, you know, my most famous work. (laughs) I didn't know that. This is news to me. Apparently, I didn't get long or far enough in my English degree to learn that. So, (laughs) wow. So Romeo and Juliet is stolen property like the United States when we stole it from the Native Americans, basically. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) That was the best analogy I could think of. I hope you like that one. I guess. (laughs) But yeah, okay. So, yeah. So this movie is a fictionalized telling of uh, how Romeo and Juliet came about. And I have so many notes. Like, I'm almost overwhelmed knowing we have to go through the plot because it's so intricate. And again, was written by somebody so much, so much smarter than me. So uh, do you think, are are we up for this? We're going to walk through the storyline of Shakespeare in Love here? I can do it. I don't know about you, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I may be leaning on you quite a bit here, so I may just turn off the mic at a certain point and I'll turn it over to our, our theater kid friend here. Yeah. With a right. perfect name too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So here we go. We're going to go through Shakespeare in Love, the movie that dumped all over Saving Private Ryan. Tee hee, tee hee. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Take that, Tom Hanks. Yeah. I can't resist. I still to this day love that that movie beat Shaving Private Ryan. Oh, I got to tell one story. So my mom, <laughs> my mom was a big English major, Shakespearean, Elizabethan expert. She loved all this stuff, but she loved Saving Private Ryan. She was like a big military fan. She loved those kind of movies. So we watched Saving Private Ryan and I said, I got to show you Shakespeare in Love because knowing you with your Elizabethan background, you'll love this movie. It's so clever. So I showed it to my mom in like 2001 and we sat through the whole movie. And afterwards I turned to her, I said, so what did you think? And she's like, that beat Saving Private Ryan. So anyway, I disowned my mom that day. Yeah, she doesn't sound very nice. (laughs) (laughs) Bless her heart. My mom is no longer with us, but she was on the wrong side of history on this one. Yes. Yes, she was. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the movie starts in 1593. And it's really the story of uh, two characters for the most part. We're going to have uh, Joseph Fiennes as young Will Shakespeare and Gwyneth Paltrow as a noble woman named Viola, Viola de Lesseps, I believe is her name. And it's really how they discover each other through art and how they basically become Romeo and Juliet and uh, their love affair becomes the play. Yeah, that's one thing, you know, before we get too much into it, it's something you know everyone's read romeo and juliet so the funny thing about this is that something will happen in the plot you know between will and viola and then that get they write that into william shakespeare into romeo and juliet and then you know something else will happen and you're sitting there like wait that's from romeo oh my gosh so it's you know kind of like telling the same story twice in a way yeah, there's, again, many levels of this movie. It's very creative. Although, let's talk about the Gwyneth Paltrow variable. Just because, as if as Harvey Weinstein is not especially popular, as he should not be, but when I also, another thing was when I mentioned I'm doing this movie, people say, oh, I hate Gwyneth Paltrow. I can't watch that movie because I hate her. Have you seen that as well on the uh, social media and stuff? Yeah, I think a lot of that is more recent, you know? Mm-hmm. 
because I'll you know I'll defend her best actress when Tell the Cows Come Home. Like she's amazing in this movie, and you know she had a great career before this movie. She had a great career after this movie, and then now that she's you know doing all the you know goop stuff and the you know oh we're consciously uncoupling blah blah blah. Like she's kind of the stereotype of you know Hollywood snobby lady. Um, just, just completely out of touch. And I think people take that and read it into Shakespeare in Love. And I'm like, okay, forget everything you think about Gwyneth Paltrow. Just, this is a different actress named Betty. Like, okay, this is Betty's performance. Just look at it like that. Well, yeah, they'll see to me, I don't understand celebrity culture where people just worship celebrities and follow their every move. Like, like I know Gwyneth Paltrow is kind of spacey and weird, and I could not give less of a shit about that. It's it's always baffling to me. Oh, I don't like that movie because she's in it. I'm like, really? I'm like, are you hanging out with her in real life? Like, I'm sorry. So it's like I don't really get how people get influenced on movies when they are into this celebrity culture. Like, again, I, I've never met Gwyneth Paltrow. I probably will not. She probably doesn't give a crap about me. I don't give a crap about her. But, like, in this movie, she is absolutely fantastic. I don't know how anybody could dispute that. Yeah, it's it's something I don't really get either. And, you know, you see it a lot in with Broadway. It's like an actor or actress will get really popular. And then everyone's like, you have to go see her, this show because so and so's in it. And I'm like, um, it's kind of a crappy show. And they're like, they take it as a personal attack on their favorite actor or actress. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, no, this show just sucks. Yeah. Do you know them? Yeah. Are you hanging out with them? I didn't. Broadway does get kind of weird with the whole, you know, stage door culture and meeting the actors after the show to sign their playbills and stuff. So mm -hmm. there are some insane Broadway fans out there that think they know and like literally stalk Broadway actors, but we don't have to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To everybody who hates Gwyneth Paltrow, I'm just, I apologize that you're such close personal friends with her and that she has let you down. I apologize for that. Yeah, you should probably um, go ahead and consciously uncouple from Gwyneth Paltrow and maybe you'll be able to enjoy this movie. Okay, so now we've alienated everybody. Let's see, I've alienated English majors, people who like Saving Private Ryan, and people who hate Gwyneth Paltrow. So, uh, oh, oh, and people who want me to shit all over Harvey Weinstein. So I'm already gone four for four and pissing off my audience here. Yeah, and if uh, Steven Spielberg, if you're still listening to this, um, I didn't like the post. <laughs> also, I'm pretty sure he had something to do with Vic Morrow being killed in the Twilight Zone movie. Probably. I feel like there were a few directors in there, but... <laughs> okay, never mind. So five for five. Okay, so we're pissing everyone. Okay, so this movie starts in 1593. We are in Elizabethan, England, London, and uh, the story's about two playhouses, right? The uh, Curtain Theater and the Rose. Yeah, the Curtain Theater, which is kind of the more hoity-toity one, um, led by uh, Richard Burbage, who is a famous actor of the time. Was he real? That I didn't get to. Um, I'm assuming. I actually found my theater history notebooks while I've been cleaning um, through the lockdown. And I was reading through them, and I didn't see anything about him. So he, maybe I was just not in class that day. Um, but anyways, and then the Rose Theater, um, which is Shakespeare's theater, the one he's associated with most, is kind of the, you know, they're the underdogs, they're the plunky ones. Um and that's run by uh, Philip Henslow, um, played by Jeffrey Rush, 
who's kind of going to be the comedic relief of the movie. Yeah, for people who may not be into their Shakespearean lore, this is basically the Caddyshack of Elizabethan movies, the rich people against the snot or the poor people. And so Shakespeare is part of the poor group. These are not the the well-paid actors. This is not the well-funded theater. They're just a ragtag bunch of losers that are trying to, you know, put together shows. And Will Shakespeare is a known playwright at this point, but he's not the number one, right? He's just one of the playwrights floating around London. Yeah, he hasn't hit um, peak Shakespeare yet. So he's kind of down on his luck, kind of pay, like pay per page, you know, okay, I'll write a crappy play if it gets me money, you know. So he's not the legend he is now quite yet. Okay, yeah, and, and Will Shakespeare, again, has writer's block right now. He's trying to come up with plays, but all, everywhere he looks, people are just giving him bad advice. They're, they're telling him, oh, people want comedies. And there's a running joke in this movie that everybody wants a comedy with pirates and dogs because that's apparently what sells. And, like, this is the audience that Will Shakespeare is trying to write for, and he knows he could do something bigger and more grand, but he can't because this is just a, it's just a crappy culture he's stuck in, and nobody really appreciates his gift yet. Yeah, it's got to have clowns, dogs, and a shipwreck. Um, those are the three edicts he's always getting from Henslow. Um, and he's going to, you know, in the whole, he's going to start writing it, writing it. And he's going to keep ensuring, it's like, oh, don't worry, the shipwreck's coming. Don't worry, here's the, the dog scene, I'm still writing. Don't worry, there are clowns at the end. And by the time, you know, they're running through final rehearsals, he's like, wait a minute, this isn't a comedy. <laughs> Yeah, and so that's the whole premise of this movie is that Will Shakespeare is working on his new play, and it's called Romeo and Ethel the Pirate's Daughter. And it's a tale of, of uh, mistaken identities and sex and pirates and dogs. And he knows this is beneath him, but again, this is what the audience wants. But uh, what do we learn here at the start? That Will Shakespeare has a wife back home in, in Stratford-upon-Avon or whatever, and he's out here in London trying to make it as a playwright, and he's just unhappy, right? Because nothing's really going right for him right now. Yeah, he's not the best of sorts currently. Um, he's really struggling to find inspiration, because like you said, he's away from his wife in the big city, and he goes to his um, therapist pretty much, and... He's talking about, it's like, oh, every time I need to write a good comedy, I'm, you know, checking up with this hot girl, and I haven't seen a hot girl really recently, and I don't know, um, you know, if I'm going to be able to write this one. And so he gives, um, I guess it's kind of like a, like apothecary kind of fellow slash therapist, um, gives him a bracelet from, allegedly, from ancient Greece on Mount Olympus, and it's, a, I think it's a dragon or a snake it's a snake. But yeah, uh, he says, write your name on a piece of paper, stick it in the mouth of the snake on the bracelet and give it to uh, the girl you're trying to get with and she'll fall in love with you. And so he does that. Um, one, I think one important plot point we missed, like right at the start. Um, Henslow, the guy in charge of the Rose Theater, um, is owes the guys a lot, a lot of money. And he's pretty much broke. The theater's broke. He's in debt. And um, the guy who's trying to collect from him, uh, Mr. Fennyman, is, you know, t trying to burn his feet. He's torturing him. He's like, give me my money. You owe me this much. 
and he panics and he's like, I have a new Shakespeare comedy coming in like two, three weeks. Please, please, please. And he's like, OK, I'm listening. And he brings him on as like a partner or co-funder for the play. <laughs> um, so there's that added pressure, too, um, for Shakespeare. It's going to be, hey, you know, you need money. Your friend's literally going to die if you don't write this comedy. Like, come on, chop, chop. <laughs> okay, and I'm kind of skipping over it because I want to get bogged down in the minutia here. But in the first 10 minutes of this movie, it's just Will running around London and all these Shakespearean references to his plays are popping up behind him. So people are saying things, a plague on both your houses. Um, there's a couple other quotes. Did you write down all the little Shakespeare references right at the start here? And again, just because for people who have not watched this movie recently or not at all, this movie goes very, very fast. The actors talk fast, it's very witty, it's very quippy, but you cannot write down all the quotes, so I'm kind of kept seeing what Will caught here. I was it's like I said at the start, I was going to, and then I'm like, oh my, this is like every other line. <laughs> so the best way I could kind of describe it generally would be if Aaron Sorkin was a theater nerd instead of who he is. Because I was watching him like, this feels like an Aaron Sorkin movie about Shakespeare. <laughs> Like, it's just that fast and that quippy. And, you know, at the beginning of the movie, you know, every they're all running down the street as they talk. And I'm like, wow, it it really just hit me. It's like, this is like Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, it definitely rewards the smarter viewers. That's the one thing I want to keep reiterating as we go through this movie. This movie really rewards you the more you know about Shakespeare and Shakespearean history. That's, again, why I think it won Best Picture, because... It's not that Saving Private Ryan's a bad movie. I think this movie speaks to people in Hollywood who have acted their whole lives, who are performers, who create art, and they like a movie that's about creating art. But again, if you know Shakespeare, if you know the history of art and Elizabethan literature, there's so many inside jokes that people like Hollywood voters would get. I can totally see how this movie could sneak in and win. Yeah, and that was a big part of the campaign, too. It's like a lot of the marketing was like, oh, art, guys. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's and it's not wrong either. It's I that's how you should market this movie. Again, it's a hundred hundred and eighty degrees different audience for this and Saving Private Ryan. So again, I'm not anticipating that a lot of my viewers who wouldn't like a movie like this are going to go out and love it. But man, if you like movies like this, this is perfect. Yeah, it's you know you might not love it, but give it a chance, guys. Come on. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, so Will is uh, being beset on all the by all these different variables around him in his life. He's supposed to be writing a comedy. He needs to write stuff for his benefactor so the guy doesn't get killed. And he's looking for a muse. And he's going to uh, – one of the things we learn in this movie is Will Shakespeare bangs a lot of women. So it's hard for him to find a muse because who does he choose out of all of them? <laughs> yeah, I honestly forgot about that plot point. <laughs> Um, I, I was like, oh yeah, this is the movie where Shakespeare's out of ideas. And I'm like, oh, he gets around. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. That's, that's the problem when you're looking for a muse. Which piece of tail do you give it to is going to be your muse today? <laughs> that is Shakespeare's biggest problem. So, it's again, it's a comedy. You're supposed to laugh at this, that Shakespeare's in a dilemma that he sleeps around way too much to have a muse. Yeah. It's like, wait, which day is it? Okay, she'll be my muse. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
<laughs> okay, so this is where he's going to meet the other woman in his life, basically. he There's a performance at the palace, and we have Queen Elizabeth, played by Judy Dench. We'll talk more about her later. She's a huge character in this movie, even though she's only in it for like six minutes. <laughs> yeah, that was insane. Yeah, so the queen is going around to all of these stage plays, and she's attending one that Will has written. And so Will goes to the castle to watch everyone, watch the queen, paying attention to his play. And as he's there, he's going to give his little muse bracelet to a piece of tail named Rosaline, who he loves, because apparently she's going to be his muse. And so while he's there, a couple things happen. He sees the queen not being amused by his play at all because she doesn't like comedies. And as he's there... He, there's another woman in the audience, Viola, Gwyneth Paltrow, who is takes note that Will is watching in the crowd because she he is her favorite playwright. Yeah, and she is, you know, she's sitting in the audience. There are a couple of shots of her, and she's, you know, pretty much, like, talking along to the play, like, to herself. You know, she knows all the lines, and then she turns around and sees Shakespeare in the back, and she's like, oh, my gosh, it's Will Shakespeare. I'm, your, you know, you're my favorite. And... So and I think it's a good contrast because we also meet uh, Lord Wessex, played by Colin Firth, and there's a shot. There's a shot where literally everyone in the audience is just laughing their asses off at some joke, and Colin Firth's character, Lord Wessex, is just sitting there like just stone faced, like I don't give a shit about any of this. I hate actors. This is dumb. <laughs> okay, so let's uh. Let's set a little set point where we are in the movie here. So Will is writing plays, mostly comedies. He sees the queen not liking his plays at all. He, she thinks his comedies are dumb. They're ridiculous. The only part in the play that she laughs at is when a dog accidentally runs on stage and bites one of the actors, to which uh, Will's benefactor says, see, dogs. People like dogs. <laughs> I think it was actually part of the play. I don't know if it was an accident. I don't know. But... But in any case, Will is upset. He's writing these grand plays with sonnets and great dialogue, but only people only want to see the dog bits. So he's very upset. And uh, so now we go to Gwyneth Paltrow. This movie's going to ping pong between Will's story and her story. And again, she's just this real, little rich girl, princess, lives in a castle with a nurse. But she loves plays. That's the one thing. She really has no you know, foot in the real world other than she loves art and she loves going to watch plays and loves watching the performance. And I think this is here we, where we get the first argument between her and her nurse over where it's appropriate for a woman to go watch plays. Yeah. Um, not only are they arguing about that, you know, cause she's like, Oh, when are we going to go to the next one? And they're like, whenever they bring it to the castle, relax. Um, they actually get in an argument. She brings up, uh, Viola brings up the fact that it's like, well, I think that, you know, women should actually be allowed to act. Like, why are all the girls played by, you know, prepubescent boys? And why are all the women characters played by ugly men in wigs? Like, women should be free to act and, you know, indulge their artistic talents and all that. You know, she's very, very idealistic and pro-art, you know. Yeah, yeah, she she doesn't, yeah, she wants, she's very idealistic pro art and she loves to go out with the people to watch the plays because she's because she says you know the plays that come to the palaces are not true plays those are ones that have been gussied up for the queen i want to see real art i want to see passion i want to see drama and you have to go to the playhouses for that and 
again, as a noble-born woman, she, she would not be allowed to set foot in one of these common playhouses. And this is the big struggle in her life, that she wants this, but she's not allowed to because people think she's too good for it. Yeah, I'd say that sums it up pretty well. Yeah. And what are, she has a bunch of quotes here. Gwyneth has, again, as Will said, Gwyneth Paltrow won Best Actress for this movie, and I think she should have. She's very good. But, yeah, she has a lot of quotes here that, you know, all the men at court are without poetry. I will have poetry in my life and adventure and love above all, love that overthrows life, love that has never been in a play. Like, she, she wants to see real passion and real love, and that's just not her world, as Will said. She's married or engaged to this guy, Lord Wessex, who is a bit of a dick, I guess would be one way to say it. A bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, and she, again, she wants to see women act on stage, and again, there's all these things she wants to see in art and literature, but she can't see it, and she's like, you know, the law forbids it and so as you can guess this will be the story of how poor will meets rich viola and it will very much parallel romeo and juliet it's very clever because it's they basically will relive romeo and juliet and he's going to write the play based on their meeting okay so here we go with the quote-unquote true story of romeo and juliet that will is writing his play which is uh romeo and uh ethel the pirate's daughter and all of a sudden, all the theaters close because of the plague. <laughs> a very timely uh, plot point, wouldn't you say, for right now? What are you talking about? That could never happen these days. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, right before we recorded this, you said there was a story about the real Shakespearean theater and the plague. What's going on with that in real life right now? Um, well, I saw it probably a month or so ago. The um, Shakespeare's Globe um which didn't exist at the time this movie took place the rose was the precursor for the globe theater um like the globe theater has fallen on really hard times because they can't they can't do anything because you can't have mass gatherings you can't put on plays so everyone is like is like the shakespeare theater gonna go under because of all this which is really scary i haven't heard any real updates about it yet but Hmm, okay, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah, so we've dated when we're recording this podcast. Somebody will listen to this a year. Yeah, they're like, oh, the Shakespeare Theater closed forever, and now I know when you recorded that. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, the, the the theater closed down because of a plague, and it was like a sign for Will. This this uh, story is not meant to be written. This play is never going to happen. And all of a sudden, his uh, benefactor, Henslow, says, oh, don't worry, Will. It will all turn out very well at the end. And Will's like, how? And Henslow's like, I don't know. It's a mystery. And that will basically be the running joke throughout this movie that no one knows how anything's going to go, but it'll just work out in the end. Somehow it's a mystery. And right after he says that, the plague lifts. They open the theaters again. And so Will sees it as a sign. Okay, we're going to go ahead with Romeo and Ethel. Although this is where he first changes the name of the play, correct? I think so, yeah. I think it goes to Romeo and Rosaline, maybe. Or maybe, no, I think he just cuts out the pirate's daughter part. And it's just... Romeo well, no, Ethel. you know, first, yeah, first he, it's the girl, his muse that his, he's been banging, that he's decided that she's going to be his muse, that he names the play Romeo and Rosalind, <laughs> to which Henslow's like, what happened to Ethel? And then Romeo goes, or uh, Shakespeare goes to tell Rosalind he's named the play after her, and uh-oh, he catches her in a compromising position. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. What happens? Well, how does he find her? He shows up. And finds her in bed with um, the master of revels, Mr. Tilney, um, who's kind of 
in a weird way, kind of the theater police, I guess you could describe <laughs> him. And, you know, they're, they've clearly been hooking up um, regularly. And so Will is kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm done with you, which, you know, you kind of be like, yeah, dude, I mean, you hook up with a lot of chicks too. So <laughs> it's kind of come back to bite you now. <laughs> it's a plague on both your houses, as you would say. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so Will Shakespeare is upset that his muse is sleeping around on him and he tears up his play and he says, Rosalind, I would have made you immortal. And he goes to the bar and he starts drinking because that's all that Will does. He's depressed. And uh, <laughs> everyone's saying, is your play done? He's like, yeah, it's almost done. It's almost done. And they're like, they already have started auditions for his play, even though it's not written. But this is where he gets a key piece of advice that there's another playwright in town named Kit Marlowe who gives him some advice on what this Romeo story should really be. Yeah. And that's one thing looking through my theater history notes, this is one of the things that they get like super duper, right? Cause Christopher Marlowe at the time was considered way better. Like he was the top dog. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Shakespeare was kind of down there and it's like, Oh, it's, it's Kit Marlowe. I'll do anything to be at your play. Blah, blah, blah. You know? And so there really was that kind of rivalry between them. And he was a real playwright. I didn't know that. He was a real dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And quick, quick note, played by Rupert Everett, um, who, you know, this is a podcast about movies that need more love. He's an actor that needs more love. Just going to throw that out. I really like him. Okay. Yeah. I think just another example of real history being worked into the history of the movie that this other playwright, Christopher Marlowe, they call him Kit. That's the same dude, right? Christopher and Kit. Yeah, it's one of those weird kind of English nicknames. It's like, where'd you get that? But yeah, Kit, Kit and Chris Marlowe are the same person. Okay, so Marlowe sits Will down in the bar and he goes over. He says, what's wrong with your play? And Will says here, blah, blah, blah. It's Romeo. It's a pirate's daughter. And, and Marlowe, who, as Will pointed out, was a bigger name than Shakespeare at the time or better playwright, says, here's what your story should be. Romeo is Italian. He's always in and out of love until he meets Ethel, the daughter of his enemy. And Will's like, oh, the daughter of his enemy. That's interesting. And Marlowe's like, Romeo's best friend is killed in a duel by Ethel's brother or something. His name will be Mercutio. And Will's like, oh, Mercutio, good name. And so Marlowe's giving him an idea. Maybe he can change the play around, add these other dramatic elements. So Will starts writing, and all of a sudden, the play's going to slowly but surely start to take effect. Yeah, and it's funny because you think you're like, oh, he's just telling him how to, you know, how to write Romeo and Juliet. But, you know, Shakespeare holds on to like, okay, so he's killed by his enemy's brother, who's still a pirate for some reason. Like he's not he's he won't let go of like the pirate, the shipwreck, the clowns, the dog. Like he's stuck in that situation that, um, you know. I guess, mindset, you could say, of like, okay, this still needs to be popular. Like, I still need to get it produced instead of like, hey, this is a more engaging story. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Will has sort of started this play that will become Romeo and Juliet. And he goes back to the playhouse and he's watching his actors audition and they're just terrible. Nobody gets what he's doing. They're all playing it like a comedy, even though he's trying to write a drama. But this is where we meet the... Uh, other star of our movie, Viola, this is Gwyneth Paltrow, that she has decided, the young progressive that she is, that, yeah, women aren't allowed to act on stage, which is a real law at the time. I don't know if most people should, I don't know if they know that women couldn't act. She has dressed in drag and she shows up because she wants to be a part of a Will Shakespeare play. 
Yep. Um, that was a real law at the time. Thank you for backing me up on that one. Fact check true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so Viola shows up and she uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in a wig and she's quite convincing as a boy, by the way. She looks like a very effeminate young boy named Master Thomas Kent. Yeah, she it really is a good job. You know, it she looks very boyish. And right off the bat, she is auditioning, and Will Shakespeare's off on the side just kind of listening to these actors, and all of a sudden he hears her give a monologue, and he just kind of turns. And again, he doesn't know that's a woman. He thinks it's a boy, but he's like, that person giving that monologue understands what I'm writing. Listen to them talk. They have emotion. They know how to deliver the lines. They have passion. He's like, who is that person? And so this is the moment when our two main characters are going to meet for the first time. Yeah, um, Shakespeare hears Thomas Kent um, give the monologue, and it's actually the same play that was being performed earlier at the castle. Um, and so Shakespeare's like, oh, my gosh, you get it. Who are you? You know, he's starting to run down to meet him on stage. And he's like, who are you? You know, take off your hat. I have to talk to you. And um, Viola panics and, you know, runs off. And there's this kind of I don't want to call it long, but there's a decent, you know, chase sequence where he's running after her or him and he's like i have to find out who this person is and you know they're chasing after each other on across the river on boats and that's when they eventually get back to the uh castle where they live yeah the de Lesseps estate will find out this person is nobility this thomas kent has been auditioning for my play and again will doesn't know that uh Viola is a woman yet. He just knows this is someone who's auditioning for his play. He's like, I need this person in my play. That is my Romeo. That that person right there is the only one who could play my character. And he passes a note. I kind of forget the details here. He passes a note to the to the, the nurse that says, give this to Master Thomas Kent. And, and eventually gets to Gwyneth, and she reads the note. She's like, I will, I will Shakespeare need to have you in my play. And she's like delighted because, again, she's like a big groupie of his at this point. And the nurse is kind of like, okay, what are we getting into? Like, calm down. Because um, they're having um, – they have to get ready for a big party that's going on at the castle, um, which, you know, Will sneaks in and stays at. And there's, you know, a sequence where they're all dancing and they actually get to meet Will and Viola. Um, and they fall in love there. So it's like, okay, Will is enamored by Thomas Kent's acting and now he loves Viola. So it's kind of – a new layer to the whole love triangle, I guess. <laughs> yes. We're going to have a three-way here. Yeah, okay, so Will Shakespeare breaks into the palace, and uh, he crashes this dance, and he sees Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, in her female attire, and he falls in love with her. Now she's going to be his muse. <laughs> At the same time, he loves Thomas Kent. Thomas Kent's going to act for him. So, yeah, it's a <laughs> love triangle where Will loves both of them in different ways. But... And this, uh, at the same time, Viola has decided she's going to go become a stage actor, and her nurse is forever disapproving, saying, no, women should not be doing this. And Viola's like, well, my parents are going to be gone for two weeks, dot, dot, dot. And you know she's going to risky business in here. When the parents are away, she's going to be a stage actor for two weeks. Yeah. And, it's, and I think it's that point where the nurse is kind of like, okay, I guess I'll help, you know, because um, – and then 
while we're while they're at the dance, you know, Wessex is there and he's you no, know, you know, negotiating with Viola's dad. He's like, okay, here's how much I'm gonna pay you to marry her and blah blah. You know, treating it like a business, and I think that's a big um, kind of subplot or plot element too. Is you know, Wessex is just all business. He doesn't believe in love, and Viola's like, love is the greatest thing ever. And so it's like, how are these two people gonna marry each other? Um, and then Wessex finds will dancing with her and threatens to kill him so he's like oh i'm christopher marlowe i'm gonna run away now bye (laughs) i love that you wonder how these two people were gonna end up being married together will have you ever met rich people before (laughs) yeah um, that's true okay (laughs) that is how they're going to get married yeah so she is betrothed to wessex because she's rich but yeah she loves will will loves her but yeah, this is the point, and this comes up later in the movie. I kind of forgot about this, where Wessex sees this, you know, this scraggly young playwright hitting on his girl, and he's like, "Stay away from my woman. She's my property. I will cut your throat." And like Will said, Shakespeare says, "Oh, my name is Marlowe." He gives the name of his rival playwright. Marlowe will be killed later in the movie. I kind of forgot about that. It's kind of tragic, but uh, yeah. So Will is already being warned: stay away from the rich girl. You're not wanted here. Yeah, and. Quick theater history nerd side note. That's kind of funny because even at the time, people kind of knew or assumed that it's like the real Christopher Marlowe. It's like, yeah, he was, he was probably gay. So, <laughs> of you know, it's just an added layer of comedy for all the theater nerds. Was Marlowe killed in a bar brawl just like in this movie? Yeah, that's actually true too. I was going to bring that up later when we get to it. But he actually did die in a tavern brawl. Yeah, that's again, that's what we're talking about. There's little history jokes and inside jokes that only history majors and English majors would get. But yeah, lots of little things like that. They're going to come up with a a story how this guy Marlowe died in a a bar in real life. But anyway, so yeah, so Will has tried to hit on this uh, Viola, the princess, and uh, she's receptive to it. But he has told repeatedly, you're not wanted here. Never, ever, ever going to happen. And uh and so that yeah, that's the end of this part of the movie that he knows he has his dream girl, but it's not going to happen because they come from different worlds. And ho- and boy, that sounds a lot like Romeo and Juliet, doesn't it? Eh, I don't know. It sounds like a stretch if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but anyway, Will has his muse now, this Lady Viola that he loves. She's the most beautiful woman she, he's ever seen. She's liberated. She loves passion and art. And so now he's in the zone. Now he's starting to write his play. Now he gets it again. And so we get a little montage here of him becoming Will Shakespeare again. He's got the eye of the tiger. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed they didn't play that during the montage. It was very boring, kind <laughs> of Elizabethan orchestra. I'm like, come on, get some Survivor in there, you know. You felt this movie needed more 80s rock hits? Yeah, I, that's the one thing that would have put it over the top for me. <laughs> okay, so everything's starting to come together for Will now. He's in love with this rich woman he can't have. They're from two different families, two different worlds. And he's starting to write this play based around this world he is now in. And a couple things are going to happen very important to the plot later. This is where we meet Ben Affleck, correct? Yes, I've never said this sentence before, but this movie gets immensely better when Ben Affleck shows up. Yes, it does. Um, I like 
I remember watching this before, you know, before getting ready for the show. And I was kind of remembered it. I'm like, I feel like Ben Affleck was kind of the weak link of the movie. And, you know, I always want to stand up for the assholes out there. But I was rewatching. I'm like, he's actually really good. <laughs> like, and this is like before his whole, you know, recent career renaissance kind of. And it's like, even early Ben Affleck could act. I'm impressed. Yeah, Ben Affleck, for people who don't know, is kind of a running joke in the 90s. People always love making fun of him because Matt Damon was the talented one and Ben Affleck was his friend. And and so it's kind of a running joke, Ben Affleck sucks. But he's really good in this, even though at the time I know people hated it because I think he and Gwyneth were already dating. So this is just like Gwyneth Paltrow's boyfriend showing up in her movie. Yeah, and I think that's another reason she got um, flat for her win, because it's like, oh, she was in Seven with her boyfriend, Brad Pitt, and now it's like, oh, she's in this Shakespeare movie with her boyfriend, Ben Affleck. Like, come on. But I just saw a YouTube video recently, the uh, great undersung movie performances of all time, and one of them they had was Ben Affleck in this movie as Ned Allen, the greatest actor in London, who's over the top and cocky and only cares about himself, and he's such a scene stealer. I love him in this movie. He's so funny. Yeah, and it's, you know, I, I love him, but I know some, like, a good number of theater people who act just like him so i'm like oh this would this you know it's kind of better because it's like oh there's no way this person could be that you know stuck up and full of themselves and obnoxious and really kind of not that good i'm like no they're out there <laughs> <laughs> now uh is is he based on a real guy is this ned allen guy a real actor um i'm I've, i didn't get to that one either i'm assuming he's probably he might be kind of a stand-in of a few other people. Mm -hmm. um, Knowing this movie, he's got to be based on somebody. Yeah, that's the thing I was going to say. I'm like, if there's not a literal person, it's got to be, you know, somebody. Okay, yeah. For people people who have not seen this movie, Ben Affleck runs a traveling company of actors, and he just bursts into the play and basically announces his presence and says... What is my what is the play and what is my part? And everybody cheers because this Ned Allen guy is this big douchebag that is the star of every show. And I love he just looks around. He's like, pay attention, people. You will see how genius creates a legend. <laughs> yeah. And I think um, important to, you know, Will's storyline, too. It's kind of when they were running auditions, like you said earlier, it's like everyone kind of sucked. And the Admiral's men were the house company for the Rose. So it's kind of like, hey, we're ba the good actors are back. What are we doing? And, okay. So they were know, real. Will they were real. Yeah. And there's kind of a shot of Will going like, oh, phew, thank you. Like somebody who I can at least work with. <laughs> I love – there's a lot of little lines that make me laugh in this movie. The one that in particular is where <laughs> Will Shakespeare knows this guy Ned Allen needs to be in his play. And so uh, – we, uh, Will says, I need you for my play. I need a Mercutio. And and Ned says, what's the title of the play? And Will says, Mercutio. <laughs> Ned's like, yes, I will take it. As long as he's the lead, he doesn't care. Yeah, and everyone's kind of giving Will. I was like, um, what? Like, that's not the play. What are you talking about? But yes, we have real actors here. Although there's a side plot in this movie that I really came to appreciate when I read up about it. I didn't realize how detailed this was. There's a little kid in the play at this point. He's playing Julie, uh, 
Ethel, the pirate's daughter. And Shakespeare doesn't like that a kid is playing a woman because he's too young. And so he kicks this kid out of the playhouse, says, you're fired, you're done. And this kid will vow revenge. And he's this little creepy kid who likes torturing animals and stuff. Did you know he's based on a real playwright, correct? Yeah, John Webster. Explain to people who John Webster was. This is hilarious to me. So John Webster was kind of um, the next generation of Shakespeare's, you know, not they weren't contemporaries, obviously, um, but he was, you know, the next generation. He was one of the big names of playwriting. And he was kind of I guess I could say he's the Eli Roth of London playwriting. All of his plays were just bloody and disgusting and lots of violence for really no reason. Um, And that actually his influence became big in that whole time period because Shakespeare was Elizabethan and John Webster was um, Jacobean. So that was, you know, big in Jacobean playwriting was just violence for no reason. And he was the big um, influence behind that. (laughs) Yeah. See, I didn't know that when I first saw this movie. Again, Shakespeare kicks this little kid out of the playhouse. The kid goes home and starts torturing rats and animals, and he, like, will squeal on Shakespeare. He's the villain for the rest of the movie. I had no idea that was based on a real playwright who followed Shakespeare and was known as a horrible person. Yeah, it's that was – even when I was watching this, because um, we watched this in my intro to theater class my freshman year, and our – professor like paused the movie at that point he's like guys guys guess what guess what and we're all like okay just start the movie again <laughs> but so you know if you're a theater nerd you a already knew that but um it's just another one of those things that you're just like oh yes yeah that's the kind of stuff that people love about this movie the inside reference to john webster someone who most people have never heard of but people who know john webster will giggle with glee when they see him show up as a side character in this movie Okay, so uh, so now we're back at the auditions, and Romeo and Ethel is slowly starting to take shape, although Will Shakespeare has renamed it. Now it's Romeo and Juliet, and his, his benefactor Henslow squawks again, Juliet, stop changing names on me. Yeah, and um, that was something he got from Ned Allen. Um, they were having a talk backstage about it, and he was – you know, he's like, why don't you try the name Juliet? That's very good. And he's like, oh, that's a good point. Thank you. <laughs> and there's a there's a quick line I just love because, um, you know, he Ned gives Will the idea for the name. And he's like, OK, yeah, just call it Juliet, dude. And he's walking out and Will's like, you're a gentleman. And then Ned just says, you're a Warwickshire shithouse. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what that means or if that's a real thing, but I'm just – And, you know, Ben Affleck kind of gives it with a little bit of that kind of Boston, New England pronunciation, which is correct, but it still, you know, makes me laugh. And so it's, yeah, I just love that line. Yes, Mercutio, or sorry, Ned Allen, still upset that there's not enough Mercutio in the play that he thinks is called Mercutio. (laughs) But he's still helping Will Shakespeare out because he knows the show must go on. And so, again, the, the... the show is starting to assemble. Uh, Thomas Kent, this is uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in drag, shows up again, and she is going to be cast as Romeo. And Will is so inspired that Will, what happens here? Will, 
he writes a sonnet, right? A love sonnet. He's like, I, I'm so moved by Thomas Kent and this Lady Viola up in the tower. I have to write a sonnet. And so he gives it to Thomas Kent to deliver it to Viola. And like he's there, they're having this surreptitious secret love affair at this point. But this is where Viola is about to get some really bad news about her future wedding plans. Yes. So, well, Shakespeare writes Sonnet 18, which is probably the most famous sonnet, you know, shall I compare thee to a winter's day um, or summer's day? Sorry. Wow. I can't believe I fucked that up. <laughs> um, shame on me. Anyways. So, you know, he writes Sonnet 18 for Viola and gives it to quote unquote Thomas Kent. And he's like, give this to Viola for me. And but she gets back to the castle and Wessex is there and he's like, okay, you know, your dad and I have agreed on all the wedding terms. We're getting married. I'm taking you to be approved by the queen on Sunday. Um, so you better behave, you know, and just he's being a huge dick and just be like, you better behave this way, behave that way, be submissive, blah, blah, blah. And he just he grabs her and like kisses her, you know, just completely unromantically. And she like freaks out slaps him in the face and she's like why would i marry you i don't love you yeah i love the line here he's like we are going to be married in two weeks i will present you to the queen and she will give her approval and then you will be my wife and viola's like what and he's like you are allowed to show your pleasure now oh my god <laughs> that i was through something at the tv when he said that like what a dick but yeah, so she doesn't want to marry this guy because she wants to, you know, love and passion. She doesn't want to just be married to some rich guy for his plantation. And he drops the one bit of logic that any rich princess would have known at the time. He's like, you would defy your father and your queen. And so she kind of lowers her head. She's like, I, no one will stand up to the queen. No one will deny her. So in two weeks, Queen Elizabeth will come here and inspect her and approve her for marriage. And so Viola only has two weeks left to pretend that she's an actress before the uh, hammer falls on her. Yeah, and that's a big part of the arrangement, too. It's like, OK, we're going to get married and then I'm going to take you to my plantation in Virginia um, and we'll go be boring rich people. Um, but fun fact check, Virginia didn't exist as a colony yet. <laughs> so, um, I don't know where they're actually going. <laughs> wow. It's a plot twist. So he's just going to abduct her and they're going to run off somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> wow. This Lord Wessex is an asshole. Yeah. And another fun fact check real quick. The actual, the real life house of Wessex died out about 1125. So it's, you know, it's a lot of kind of amalgamations of various um english history you know it's you know we fudge things with this one <laughs> okay so viola knows that she can be a playwright for a or a, she can be an actor for a little bit and uh you know pretend she's this poor you know stage girl but it's all going to be for naught and there's no way this love affair with will shakespeare is ever going to happen so he has written her the most famous sonnet in shakespearean history and in response, she writes him a dump letter where she dumps him. She George Costanzas him and she says, it's not you, it's me. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, like she just straight up is like, sorry, I'm married. And he gets it and he reads it. And um, there's a part later where he's, you know, running after because Thomas Kent gives it to him and reads it in front of him. And she's like, and Shakespeare says something like, hey, you know, there's 
their water, you know, it looks kind of runny here. Was she crying when she wrote this? Does she really love me? And, you know, they spend that whole boat ride like, dude, she's getting married. Not, And he's Shakespeare's not realizing he's talking to Viola. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like she's getting married. Sorry. You know, there's not really much we can do. Although to Shakespeare's credit, he says he does not take no for an answer. He still pursues her, and he eventually wins her over with his prose and his words of love. And uh, this is where we get the first of several sex scenes in the movie. Yeah, I was kind of surprised how many there were. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of topless Gwyneth Paltrow in this movie. Yeah, because I was because I remember this one. It's like you know they have the part where they get to the castle and they're you know. Uh, Viola still dressed as Thomas Kent and they end up kissing and the boat ride driver's like, um, okay, bye. <laughs> and so, and then they have this sex scene, but there are like probably four or five other ones, you know, throughout the show, throughout the movie. And I'm like, I forgot about all these. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you want to see a lot of Gwyneth Paltrow, you see a lot of her in this, but this, again, it's not presented sleazily. It's very romantic that he's really won this girl over and they love each other and they have this forbidden affair. He'll climb up her window and sleep with her. And the next morning he has to slip out before uh, anybody finds out. And of course, Viola's nurse knows what's going on. She's trying to cover for her, but she knows this is a terrible idea. This playwright's going to get killed. But again, it's very clever because they work a lot of Romeo and Juliet stuff in here where he's like speaking to her up on her balcony, which will later become obviously Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. I have to give credit to the nurse, though. There's one sex scene where she like sits up a chair in front of the door and is just listening to them having sex. And then like other kind of servants are walking by and they're like, what's going on in there? She starts like rocking her chair back and forth. Like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Like she's trying to cover for her so bad. But, but always remember, even though Viola loves the sex and loves this romance, what she really, really likes is passion and performing and art. And so at one point in their affair, she even kicked Shakespeare out of bed. He's like, I just want to lay here all day and, and mount you. And she's like, I'm sorry, you would have us not have Act 3 for our rehearsals today? Get out of here. Go write Act 3. So, like, Viola, remember, at the heart of her is always she just wants art. She just needs the creation of this play that she knows is going to be really good. Yeah, I had that written down, too. It's like, oh, I have time. I can, you know, it's only 7 o'clock. You know, the rooster just crowed. Don't worry. And she's like, no, you better go write me some more stuff, dude. <laughs> Okay, so here we go. Um, it's He's sneaking up there having his forbidden affairs with her. The nurse knows, but, you know, you know this is going to end poorly. But, again, Will is inspired. He's writing Romeo and Juliet. He's writing it for Viola. It's really a dedication to her, and she loves it. She loves this play, and everything's going well. And this is where uh, they do a, a back and forth where they cut to people rehearsing the play and then cut back and forth to Will and Viola. And it's like... They'll, they're using her actual dialogue as how she talks to her nurse, and Will will write it into the play. I think it's very clever. Yeah, that was one thing I really liked. It's like, you know, I don't – I think story-wise it was kind of framed like Will brought it to her, and it's like, here's the next thing I wrote. You know, let's read it while we're having sex again. And then, you know, you cut to rehearsal, and they're rehearsing that scene, and then it's like, oh, we're having sex again. Here's more play. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's kind of a nice – it's a nice little montage, even if it has a lot of sex. <laughs> Come on, that only makes it better, Will. Yeah, but it's it's Gwyneth Paltrow, though. Like, 
I think this was the movie that kind of made me realize I was gay. I'm like, oh, hey, Gwent, topless Gwyneth Paltrow, eh, whatever. <laughs> so you were hoping for more Thomas Kent sex scenes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry you could do better than Gwyneth Paltrow, Will. Yeah. Well, I mean, me and her are already really good friends, so it's kind of be weird. (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay, so, again, Romeo and Juliet is really starting to take shape, and even the actors, even Ned Allen, Ben Affleck, will admit this is a really good play, even if Mercutio's barely in it. Although... Shakespeare has promised him, you have a great death scene. You will have the greatest sword fight battle ever. You will have a great scene where you can milk the scenery and die. And so Ben Affleck's kind of on board with this. And again, everything's going well until we get the big day. Now is the day when Viola is to be presented to Queen Elizabeth, and a lot of things are going to change here. Yeah, I didn't realize, because starting with this part, like this movie gets dark, like Mm -hmm. pretty dark for about half an hour. And I've just, that's another thing I completely forgot. Cause I'm like, oh, it's like a two hour nice little comedy about Shakespeare. I'm like, oh my God, this is getting, this is going places. Well, that's why when I read that this was the first comedy that won Best Picture, I was kind of shocked because I don't necessarily consider this a comedy. But again, I know like in Shakespearean times, it's either a drama or a tragedy or a comedy. And by those standards, it's a comedy. But like, this is a pretty serious movie at times. Yeah, like that's, and I've heard that criticism about the real Shakespeare too. It's like, there's so much in between comedy and tragedy, but it's like, like half of his tragedies have a lot of funny parts. And then half of his comedies are kind of really more dark because there really wasn't that in between section even back then. Yeah. But I think the part you're talking about is where uh, Will says, you know, I thought I was writing a comedy. I'm writing a tragedy now. And Viola says, what do you mean a tragedy? And he's like, well, because the only way this love affair between two people in different worlds can end is in heaven, that they must die to get together. It's like Titanic, basically. And Viola's like, really? And he's like, yeah, one of them. So he he knows he's probably going to die. He's not allowed to see Viola. It's not going to go anywhere. He knows he's probably going to end his, his life will be ended because of this. But he's cool with that. He just wants to finish the play, which is the same story. And this is where, like you said, it gets very dark because they come to the realization this will not end well at any point. Yeah, I think Will's very kind of resigned to his fate. And I think there are parts where he kind of thinks of it. It's like, this is going to be my last big play, and then I'm going to get killed for hooking up with this rich lady. But, you know, it's passionate. Well, the quote that I have written down here is he wrote, A broad river divides my lovers. It is as unchangeable as nature. So, yeah, so he's screwed, literally. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And, you know, there are lots of lines about rivers, too. I guess it's a saying of the day, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So here's the scene. And again, Judy Dench won Best Supporting Actress for this movie. She plays Queen Elizabeth. She absolutely owns every minute she's on screen. This is her big scene right here. But it was kind of a controversy at the time because I think she's in the movie the least of any Best Supporting Actress or Actor ever in any movie. She's like six minutes of screen time or something. Uh, I think she's second least because um, the I think the woman that won Best Supporting Actress I forget her name uh, for Network oh. was in the movie for like five minutes and she still won so I think this is like Judy Dench was right behind her. I think the Gimp from Pulp Fiction was up there as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as Sir John Gielgud as the Gimp. <laughs> okay, so. 
So here's Judy Dench as the queen. Queen Elizabeth is uh, to judge Lady Viola, see if she's appropriate for marriage. And, and, and Will Shakespeare cannot let this happen. He has to go to be a part of it. He wants to see what's going to happen. So he disguises himself as a woman. We have a little more uh, cross-dressing in this movie, although his is even less appropriate or less elaborate than Thomas Kent's. He just puts a little drape across his mouth. Yeah, it's kind of a really shitty costume. (laughs) (laughs) He literally just takes like a blanket or a towel or a drape or whatever and like kind of fashions it into a hat. And it's literally he's literally holding it from he doesn't even like tuck it in or anything. He's literally holding it. And he has this like horrible kind of like fake Julia Childs kind of voice like, oh, I'm the laundry woman. Like, oh, I'm going with you to the queen. Oh. And it's, and Wessex is just looking at her like, really? Like maybe next time? And she's like, no, no, I must come now. He <laughs> so. yes. Will Shakespeare doing his Mrs. Doubtfire as he plays Miss Wilhelmina. And he's going to go watch the queen judge his girlfriend. <laughs> Okay, here we go. This is a great scene. Again, I love the scene. Uh, this, this movie's so charming. There's so many great things. But the scene where Judy Dench has to judge Gwyneth Paltrow as being appropriate for marriage, I just basically wrote down their entire exchange verbatim. It's so awesome. Okay, although before, uh, Wes, remember, uh, Wessex pulls Will Shakespeare aside and said, is that playwright still around here diddling my girlfriend? And Shakespeare's like, oh, yeah, Marlowe, that guy's still around. Uh, yeah, he's still here. And so this is where Marlowe's going to get killed. Like, he's basically setting up a death warrant on Marlowe's life. Oops. Yeah. He's Wessex. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, yes, well, he's all here all the time. <laughs> and so he's like, I think Wessex line something like that bastard or something, which, you know, isn't the best dialogue, but whatever. Um, and so. Like you said, it's pretty much, he doesn't realize it at the time, but it's like, yeah, Marlowe's going to get dead. (laughs) Okay, so here we go. Judy Dench, the queen, in full Queen Elizabeth, Sun Queen attire, where she's judging Viola if she is appropriate for a marriage marriage to a nobleman. The queen says, she's looking at Gwyneth Paltrow. She's like, I've seen you. You are the one who comes to all of the plays. What do you love so much about plays? Do you love stories of kings and queens, of feats of arms, or is it courtly love? And Viola says, well, I love theater, to have stories acted for me by a company of fellows. And the queen just shuts her down. These plays are not acted for you, they are acted for me. (laughs) I love that line. That's a great line. And then uh, Viola says, and I love poetry above all. And the queen says, above all, even above Lord Wessex, your husband, and everyone in the in the court titters. <laughs> yeah, all, it's like a rough, like, oh, <laughs> yeah. And so the queen says, my Lord Wessex, when you cannot find your wife, you better look for her at the playhouse. And everyone. Dee, dee. <laughs> <laughs> so great. All right, so here's the queen again saying, and the queen once again points out that art is not real, that no true passion or meaning can come out of plays. Plays are just silly little comedies. And she says, playwrights teach us nothing about love. Oh, they make it pretty. They make it comical. They make it lust. They cannot make it true. And Viola says, oh, but they can. I mean, they do not. They have not. But I believe there is one playwright who can. So she's building up her boyfriend here, Shakespeare. 
Yeah, and I love how she's like, she says that. I was like, no, they can. I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, oh, shit, you're still the queen. Um, yeah, you're right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then Wessex apologizes for Viola. Oh, she's young and foolish. And Wessex says, nature and truth are the very enemies of play acting. I'll wager my fortune. And so the queen smacks him down, too. She's like, fortune? I thought you were here before me because you have no fortune. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Queen Elizabeth the Roastmaster. Yeah, she's just bitch slapping these people left and right. And then the queen says, so you will wager your fortune that there's no nature or truth in playwriting? And says, it seems no one will take your wager. And so Will Shakespeare off to the side says, I'll let you do the impression. 50 pounds. You forgot to add the T T. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'll do it again. 50 pounds. <laughs> Thank you for the laugh. Perfect. And so the queen says, 50 pounds, a worthy sum for a very worthy question. Can a play show the very truth in nature about love? And the queen kind of looks around and says, I bear witness to this wager, and I will be the judge of it as occasion rises. And everyone applauds her, and she's like, I've seen nothing to settle the question yet. So the queen, there's now a bet. If you can show true love and true passion in a play, no one believes it can ever happen, but she is cagey enough to think maybe it can. She was willing to be the, the, the uh, arbiter of this particular bet. Yes. And that's kind of going to set the scene for the last bit of the movie. Like that's kind of the main um, plot point there. Although we're leaving out one part, probably the best Judy Dench quote of the movie where she walks up to West Lord Wessex and gives a little bit of information about his future wife. Yeah. You, I mean, I'm sure you have the exact quote, but it's something like, um, like she's been plucked since the last time I saw her. It takes a woman to know. Yes. <laughs> That's the quote that Judy, they'd always show for the Oscar clips for Judy Dench. She's kind of talking under her breath to this Lord douchebag West Wessex. And she's like, have her as your wife then. But, you're a lordly fool. She's been plucked since I saw her last, and not by you. Takes a woman to know it. <laughs> and Wessex is like, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, when he'd say Newman, he's like, Marlowe. Yeah. So Marlowe's <laughs> a dead man from here on out because the queen has just confirmed that Marlowe has plucked his future wife. Yeah, not good. Poor Marlowe. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, from here on out, it's just... uh. A race against time to see if they can get this play out, this uh, Romeo and Juliet, the true nature of love on stage for the first time ever. But tragedy befalls uh, everybody. I think this is where the, the theater gets shut down, correct? Yeah, there's actually, you know, quite a bit that happens because the other play company shows up and like ransacks the place and then they find out Marlowe's dead and then it gets revealed that, oh, Thomas Kent's actually a woman, surprise. And then she, and then Viola finds out that Will's married. Like, everything just kind of falls apart, like, right about now at the same time. Yeah, I believe that's no, what we know as Act 3. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lots of bad things. Are so, yeah, okay, we're going to skip through a couple scenes. But, yeah, the gist of the matter is uh, the little kid who got kicked out of the play. What was his name again? John Webster. John Webster, the douchebag, animal-torturing playwright, catches Will and Viola making out behind the scenes. He knows that she's a man, that she's a girl. In fact, in the words of him, I saw him kissing her bubbies. Yeah. 
It's like, oh, I, she's a woman. I saw her boobies. And he was kissing her. I saw her kissing her boobies. Like, he just keeps sensing it. Yeah. And so someone kills Kit Marlowe, the other playwright, Shakespeare's friend and competition. He's killed in a bar fight. And Will's like, oh, my God, I got him killed by saying he was the one sleeping with Viola. Uh, they find out that Viola is actually a, man, a woman. And Viola finds out, as you said, they're joking. Oh, Will's got a wife back in Stratford-upon-Avon. And so we learn, Viola learns, wait, you've got a wife, you dick? And then, yeah, and so they kind of break up in the way they can for really not being together. But they, and then Wessex runs into Viola um, going to church, and he doesn't say Marlo's name, but he's kind of like, oh, your playwright friend died, mm, how sad, but, huh. but she assumes he means Shakespeare. So she's completely destroyed. Yeah, and it's again this this breakup won't last long. That Will thinks he has killed Marlowe. She thinks that Will is dead. They meet up. They realize it was all just a misunderstanding. They they still love each other despite all this crap. Despite her being kicked out of the play, blah blah blah. But it's gonna all come to naught here at the end, where all of a sudden the little kid goes to the town constable and says, "Oh, there's a woman acting in this play," and the constable comes and shuts down the theater because it's an act of vagrancy. Thanks, theater police. Jeez. <laughs> and one quick Shakespeare allusion I re that really stuck out to me is um, when they're at the church, Will somehow finds his way there, and Wessex sees him, and just starts freaking out. And he's like, wait, I just, you know, you just died, but there you are. And he, like, just runs out of the church screaming, and that's... You know, that reminds me of this one part of Macbeth where, you know, Banquo's ghost shows up. And it's just I was nerd moment there. But it's just like, wow, that goes deep. <laughs> well, there's a scene where, yeah, Will shows up and it goes to scare Wessex. And that's like a Hamlet thing, right? I guess it could be Hamlet, too. I don't um, know. I, you it, know these better than I do. Yeah, it was, it was definitely I definitely got more Macbeth vibes from that one. Okay, so anyway, yeah, the Rose Theater is shut down because it has been proven that they were using a woman on the stage. Oh, my God. Now, when – do you know this? When did they start allowing women to act on these plays? Do you know what timeline that was? Um, That was – I don't have it in front of me right now, but it probably wasn't until the late 1600s, I'm assuming, if, if even that. Yeah, I was just assuming all theater kids pass this information around like currency. We're supposed to, but I didn't have the best attendance. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> okay, so the play is canceled. The Rose Theater is closed. The whole city has shut it down, and all is lost for our intrepid young performers putting on their play. And, uh, yeah, it's just all over. Although then we get a twist here at the end, the last 30 minutes of the movie, that the owner of the other playhouse in town the curtain burbage says you can use my play to put on romeo romeo and juliet because i love this play i think you need to do it and i think part of it too is like you know the queen thinks we're all idiots you know the royalty hates us the police hate us. you know fuck all them let's go do art together like kind of like the big rallying cry for all the art 
you know, nerds in London. <laughs> yes. All the theater kids in London are rebelling. So they get one chance to do this play. They know they're probably going to get arrested afterwards, but they go. And again, it's everybody but Viola at this point, who again was, if you have to think of this in reversal, she's playing Romeo because people know her as Thomas Kent. But uh, Will Shakespeare is going to play Tom uh, Romeo now. They're going to do one performance and it'll be without Viola because she's off getting married. But in an act of fate, she finds out they're performing that one day and she slips away from her honeymoon to go watch the performance. Yeah, they're literally walking out of the church after their uh, wedding and a flyer blows into their face. And she's like, what's this? I'm like, oh, it's the play. I have to go. And so she enters the carriage first and just kind of snakes out the other side and then Wessex gets in and is like where's where's my wife oh oh shit yes. least successful honeymoon night ever yeah <laughs> the wife disappears so here we go the last 20 minutes of the movie is the performance of romeo and juliet the first one ever and again it's all been based on will and viola their love affair their forbidden love the danger it's really their story that will's written into a play and we go over to the curtain theater and uh, it's just chaos behind the scenes for the performance which i'm assuming this is typical for an opening night it's just everyone running around backstage like chickens with their heads cut off yeah, I don't know if it was, you know, this bad when I was in school, but it was it's that same kind of nerves. Like it's like, yeah, we all know the parts, but like, oh, it's it's opening night. We're getting ready. I have to convince myself that we don't like it's, you know, we kind of trick ourselves. It's like, I'm going to forget all my lines. I'm going to panic. Blah, blah, blah. You know, it is really kind of pandemonium the first on opening night. Yeah, it's, it's the same type of chaos as you might have seen in the storming of the beach at Normandy in Save a Private Ryan. <laughs> yeah, there, that's typical of the, you know, theater. There's usually someone just sprawled out on the floor with their spleen out there. And they're, oh, my God, I forgot my lines. Damn theater kids. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so what's the chaos that's going on behind the scenes here? The, they have a narrator who stutters. And the the boy who's playing Juliet, his voice just dropped, right? Yeah, he just, his balls just dropped. So he's you know he walks up to Shakespeare and he's like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And Shakespeare's like, Oh no! And so, and you know, um, one of the because the narrator was played um, by Henslow's friends, like it's a favor for one of Henslow's friends. So. You know, he's every other word. He's like, I'm like, and so he's doing that backstage, going through his lines. And Will is just like, this is this is going to be the end of me, you know, in the other way, in my career sense. But then, you know, the narrator steps out and there's like probably 15 or 20 seconds where you're standing out there and it's like we're all stuttering. And, you know, you're sitting there watching. and It's like, oh, this is going to go awful. This is going to suck. And then he just completely nails the prologue <laughs> like it's, you know, and it's, you know, just a good sign of what's to come. Yeah. And that's one thing I think has kind of been forgotten over time. And a lot of the early reviews of this movie pointed this out when they again, it's a play within a movie. They're acting out Romeo and Juliet. But like the performance of Romeo and Juliet is really good. Like, it's one of the better ones I've ever seen. And a lot of the critics pointed that out at the time. Among all the other charming things and clever things this movie does, there's a really good stage performance of Romeo and Juliet at the end. Yeah, and I've seen it, you know, at a bunch of different Shakespeare festivals and, you know, theater companies will do it all the time. So I've seen it a lot. And 
when I was watching the movie getting ready, once they started the performance, I literally wrote no notes because I just get so enthralled. So I'm like, this is a great performance of Romeo and Juliet. Like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And we even get the running joke here where Henslow says, oh, don't worry, Will. It'll all turn out. And Will's like, how can it turn out? Everything's going wrong. I have a stuttering narrator. My Juliet's gone. Like, they're going to shut us down. There's a plague. How can this turn out well? And Henslow's like, I don't know. It's a mystery. they just start the play and like will said it's it's i have almost no notes as well because it's so enthralling just watching this play you've seen the birth of it the genesis of it how it's all come about and like they start acting it and although the plot twist here is they have no juliet and viola runs because she wants to watch the performance she's been a part of all these months and she's in the audience and she hears someone say they have no juliet that's going to be a problem we need to we're going to panic and so she immediately rushes down onto stage and even though she knows it's against the law she will be the juliet and so now we have will shakespeare as romeo viola as juliet acting out their real life love affair in a play within a play it's really cool yeah and at that point um like wessex has caught up to her and chased her down at the theater and he's sitting up in the balcony and he's like my wife's on the state like he doesn't know what to do he's just like i guess i'll sit here and watch or grumble 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 you know like he's just kind of resigned to the fact they're like okay i guess i have to sit through this play yeah and as the play's going and again if you know romeo and Juliet, you know all the beats all the all the big sh- scenes are here we finally see ned allen and as mercutio have his big duel and have his death scene and it's amazing but intercut with that is the a shot of the police all the london police coming to shut down the theater because everyone here is going to be arrested for for vagrancy again yeah the master of rebels is marching in with his goons and you know it's it's really well well edited because you know they give you a long stretch of you know, the play, and then it's like, okay, here they come, here they come, and you're just sitting there, and you're like, oh, crap, I forgot about that. But then it's like the play comes back on, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, and they're like, oh, yeah, they're all going to get arrested. (laughs) But then we get to the end of the play, and it's just, it's so wonderful. Again, I just cannot say enough about how much this part of the movie moves me. And again, I'm not even a theater kid. I couldn't really give a rip about Shakespeare, but it's so obvious that the players are giving their all for this play, and you see the audience is just... Dumbstruck. They can't say a word. You could hear a pin drop the last 10, 15 minutes of this play as we see Romeo die and then Juliet die. And the audience is just in awe. They've never seen a a play they're this moved by before. Yeah, and there's one part, um, I think it was after, you know, they're all, the audience starts clapping and everyone's freaking out. And there's one part where Will and Viola, you know, they're sitting there on the you know the table on the stage and they just look at each other and just kiss and i honestly start tearing up (laughs) at that point like it gets me that much i'm like oh my gosh like it's just you know a culmination of two hours it's just this really awesome movie yeah and i'll admit i'll freely admit i kind of tear up at this part too it's the scene where where uh will kills himself he drinks the poison, he collapses, and Juliet's dead next to him. And then Gwyneth Paltrow sits up, and just the, the reaction from the audience, they all gasp. Because they're like one beat ahead of where the story is. They know she's going to see this, her dead lover next to him, next to her. 
it's like that it's so well done and again that's like the kind of stuff that i love on staff picks i look for little moments like that in movies that really move you and i think are so emotional and so perfectly shot and just that moment alone is why i'm so happy this movie won over again saving private ryan a fine movie as well but like this movie is different it just speaks to me in a whole different level and i just love every little thing about the last 10 minutes of this movie yeah and i even caught myself you know kind of saying the lines of Romeo and Juliet to myself, you know, there'll be a, like a dramatic pause in the movie and I'm like, you know, talking along with it, but that's cause I am the theater nerd of this podcast. So <laughs> please let, do not get us mixed up. I am not the theater nerd here. That's you. Yeah. You have a wife. <laughs> yes. Gwyneth Paltrow, by the way, I should point that out. So, <laughs> Oh, great. Yeah. It's a, a little more incentive to feature this movie. Gwyneth, uh, she's out in the other room right now. So uh, so the play ends and the audience is just silent and they don't know what to do. And like all the players look around like, did they like it? And then everyone just bursts into thunderous applause because, again, I can't I can't even imagine seeing Romeo and Juliet the first time in that type of a theater setting. If you didn't know the story ahead of time, it's so well acted and crafted and everything. The lines are so iconic. But, yeah, you just get a great moment where everybody basks in the fact that they did true passion. They showed true love in a play was actually possible. And then the cops burst in to arrest everybody. Womp womp. (laughs) Yes. Although, great scene here. So the policeman comes in. He says, I arrest all of you in the name of Queen Elizabeth. And he keeps saying, I arrest you in the Queen's name, in the name of Elizabeth. And and lo and behold, it turns out that Queen Elizabeth is here in the crowd in disguise. She pulls off a little cloak and everyone gasps. And Judy Dench just just says, have a care with my name. You will wear it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love how it like... She's wearing a cloak and then she takes it off, but she still has like her queen dress on. <laughs> like it's just not really a disguise. I'm like, that's one thing. I'm like, how did nobody notice they're sitting next to the queen? Yeah. How did they slip her in there in full sun queen attire? Somehow they did. But yeah. So yeah. the guy's like, I, I closed down this theater on threat of lewdness. And the queen's like, the queen does not attend displays of lewdness. <laughs> and so she walks down. She's like, I rather like this play. And everyone's like silent and bowing before her. And she's like, let me inspect Mr. Thomas Kent. And she walks up and she knows this is Gwyneth Paltrow. She knows this is a woman, but the queen has a great line here. She's like, ah, the likeness is very, uh, very uh, exquisite. But uh, you look very much like a woman. I can see why people might think you really are a woman, but I know you are not. And we know she's talking to Viola who just wanted to be an actress. And this is the line, again, Judy, Den- Judy Dench has great lines. She says, but I know something of a woman in a man's profession. Yes, by God, I do know about that. That's a great line. Yeah, I really love that one, too. Yeah, so the queen basically decrees, this play was amazing. It's the best play I've ever seen. I saw true art and true passion in the true nature of love in a play. Lord Wessex, you have lost your bet to Master Shakespeare. And by the way, that's not a woman. That's really a man. It's just a good disguise. So the queen lets everybody off the hook. Yeah, and it's funny because she has a line where it's like, if only Lord Wessex is here. And then John Webster is like sitting right there on the floor and he's like, but she is, mom. And it's just like completely blows the spot up. Like that dude, John Webster. (laughs) 
But again, at the end of the play, everything ends well. They have their moment. The queen makes sure that Shakespeare wins the bet. And the queen has seen the first drama that truly shows the nature of love. And it has moved people. And it has inspired staff picks. But then I always forget this movie does not have a happy ending after that. I kind of forget that. Yeah. And this was kind of at the time of controversy uh, when they were making it. Because apparently the ending was even more sad. And then they're like, audience like test audiences were like no we gotta have a little bit of hope here but even like you said it's not a happy ending it's just a less depressing ending from what the original was okay so explain to people what the ending of the movie is so basically everyone you know they all go outside and you know wessex is chasing down the queen and he's like wait a minute i'm sorry blah 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 and you know they all the actors are coming out the stage door and um queen elizabeth is like okay give me the money you lost the wager and she gives it to viola and she's like mr kent you know make sure this gets to um will shakespeare and go find lord wessex's wife in there whatever you know blah blah blah. and so viola and will are up in the theater and she you know she gives them the money and he's like i'm giving up on playwriting because this doesn't happen in real life. And, you know, Viola's kind of like, hey, listen, look what you've inspired. Um, and you can still write and you can inspire even more people. And she starts giving him, um, you know, kind of ideas for the next play. And it's like, OK, um, so I'm moving to Virginia. So write a play about a woman in a faraway land and maybe throw in a shipwreck, you know, cause that's something the queen says too. Um, she's like, and tell Shakespeare, maybe a comedy next time. And so, well, she even gives him the name, the title. Yeah. She says, um, you know, maybe something for 12th night, which is a real holiday at the time. It was kind of like, you know, a post Christmas holiday, um, where everyone just kind of went nuts. But so, you know, they're up in the theater and they're like, I'll, you know, I've, you've inspired me, Viola, you know, no matter if we end up together, I still love you. And he starts writing um, Twelfth Night, the play, and the main character is sailing off to a faraway land and gets in a shipwreck, and her name is Viola. So Now, okay, for Shakespearean history, was Twelfth Night the first play after Romeo and Juliet? Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Shakespeare actually wrote... 10 other plays over a six year period in between Romeo and Juliet and 12th night. So it wasn't even close. Okay. Well, to be fair, Shakespeare was banging a lot of girls. So this wasn't the only girl he was writing plays for. That's true. <laughs> yeah. But that's, I love that ending. Yeah. Uh, the queen says perhaps something more, a comedy next time for 12th night. And so as Viola is going off to the new world to get married again, because you can't, defy the laws of marriage and rich people and poor people aren't supposed to end up that she really does go off with Wessex and she and Will have one last forbidden kiss underneath the stage house and underneath the playhouse. And they start talking about what his next play will be. And they start their ping pong and ideas back and forth between each other. And they basically spell out the play 12th night, which is my personal favorite Shakespeare play. And I'd completely forgotten that the girl's name is Viola in 12th night. So it's like it's it just again, this is the untold story of how Romeo and Juliet came about and also the untold story of how Twelfth Night came about. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I don't want to get sued by anybody here. 
Yeah, the Shakespeare estate's going to come after us. <laughs> and just to clear that up, her the character name in Twelfth Night is Viola. I'm not just making that up, right? Yeah, that's real. Okay, good. But yeah, it's not a super cheery ending. That's just they just write a story on, or he writes a story. On what would happen if his love is going off to the New World to this mysterious Virginia that didn't exist yet, and the her boat crashes and Lord Wessex dies, and said, "Hey, let's make a comedy out of that." And so that's really the future life of a playwright. He can just have unrequited love. He can write about it and portray it in art, but he can't really obtain it himself, which is very sad in a way. Yeah, but on the plus side, the idea of Lord Wessex dying in a shipwreck really does make me laugh. <laughs> yeah, and probably there was a dog, too, so it was funny. Yeah, the dog drags him into the ocean off of a log. <laughs> and so there we have it, the much maligned Shakespeare in Love, which, again, is such a charming movie. And again, I, we're just teasing people that like uh, Saving Private Ryan, because there really are two types of people in the world, the Saving Private Ryan types and the Shakespeare in Love types. I personally get along better with the Shakespeare in Love types, but they're both good movies. But again, there's no reason this movie should be crapped on as much as it is. It's so charming and light and intelligent and clever that I just I just wish there were more movies like this, even if it's not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah, because it's not even like fluff. It's like what you said. It's like it gets pretty serious and dark, you know, halfway so or through halfway through or so. And, you know, there's a lot to unpack, you know, plot wise. It's pretty it's complex. It's engaging and it is witty. It's charming, but it also does make you feel something. And that's the message of the movie. And that's what art's about. So come at me. Exactly, and that is what I do on Staff Picks. I try to present art to you that I think people will be moved by or will enjoy. So, again, Shakespeare in Love, uh, I'm unabashedly a fan of it. I really hope more people give it a chance and start to love it for what it is and not for what it is not. Yep. And I think that's it. I think we did it. Wow. Good job, us. <laughs> Didn't even have to kiss anybody on the bubbies to do it, but we did it. Oh, phew. <laughs> All right, so, Will, do you have anything else to say about theater or art or being a theater kid before we sign off here? Um, not too much else. Um, there's one part, because um, the financier ferryman gets cast as the apothecary in Romeo and Juliet, which is a really small part, but he's, like, super into it, and he's talking backstage with Shakespeare. He's like, oh, I have the perfect blue cap for that, and blah, blah, and the posters they put up are like you know they're listing it's like oh play by shakespeare by this company starring mr fennyman as the apothecary <laughs> and there there are theater kids that are totally like that like they get like the smallest part possible and they just go all in but as the saying goes there are no small parts only small actors so <laughs> and that does lead me into something that i forgot to mention Apparently, this is a very well-known stage play now. They eventually took this movie, they made it into a stage play, and I have heard other people that are involved in theater say, it's amazing. This show really pops when it's on stage. You have to see it live. Yeah, it's, you know, it got adapted, you know, a few years or so ago, and it's been at the top of the list for, you know, because they put lists out every year about the most produced high school shows, most produced college shows, and it's all for plays. It's always at the very top. Like people love this. And how many uh, high school productions are there of Saving Private Ryan? Do you recall? Um, negative four. <laughs> all right. I rest my case. 
Yeah. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Thank you, Will, for coming by to uh, give some love to a movie that I have a lot of love for in my heart. I just love this movie, and I really, again, hope people stop crapping on it and just appreciate it for what it is. It's a very, it's a very clever, witty movie. There are not too many movies like this one out there. Yeah, it really it checks all the boxes for me, and I just I love it. You know, for it was actually I forgot to mention this at the start. One of the first. R-rated movies I actually have seen. Wow! Um, cause my sis- my sister showed me the '96 Romeo and Juliet with Leo and Claire Danes, which I also love. And um, we were watching that in when I was in ninth grade, um, just to kind of get people familiar with it. And I ran home and I was like, "Guess what we watched? Guess what we watched? It's great!" And so she's like, "Oh, I should show you this other Shakespeare movie." So thank you to my older sister for that. And that's where you saw Gwyneth Bubbies, and you realized you were gay. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, this movie fudges with some timelines, so we can fudge with some timelines there. But <laughs> it's a little before the bubbies. <laughs> Saw the bubbies, and he's like, uh, in living color. Hated it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. No, it's fine. It was fine. All right. Again, uh, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Thank you for listening. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for movies that deserve more love and should not be crapped on anymore. I will talk to you guys later. Bye. You are an eager boy. Did you like the play? I liked it when she stabbed herself, Your Majesty. And the Oscar goes to... Shakespeare in Love. <laughs> David Carpenter, Donna Gelato.